Welcome, everybody, to episode seven of Did You Do Your Homework? I am, as always, one of your wonderful co-hosts, Martha, and I am joined today by... I'm Pete. And I'm Kaylee. And hopefully by now you know that we are all three a trio of super-duper nerds who are here to assign you homework, make you enjoy it, and then talk about it. We teach you everything about anything. Um, But we are going to start off before our lesson today by listing off our pop culture credentials. These are the last pieces of pop culture or media that we interacted with, and we are obligated to tell them to you without censorship uh, or shame so that you can see that we know, uh, know our stuff. So, Pete, why don't you tell our wonderful listening audience what the last piece of media you consumed was? I'm going to mildly cheat and give two uh, but they make oh. sense because one is a single song and the other one is a, a Spotify playlist. Um, so Legion just ended. Boy, that was a great show. Uh, and I discovered that there is a Legion Spotify playlist which has both all of the um, music in Legion uh, and then also all <gasps> the original soundtrack music, music in Legion. Uh, it has <laughs> both combined. Martha, go listen to this immediately as we're done here. Um, I was going to say, this is wonderful. Yeah, it's just so excited. (laughs) Spotify search Legion and you're set. Um, That led me down a rabbit hole of Jeff Russo, who does the uh, original soundtrack for Legion, also did the original soundtrack for Fargo um, and The Night Of. He's a phenomenal composer. I'm digging all that he does. That's my number one is Jeff Russo and Legion on Spotify. Number two, Hmm. personal familial plug, uh, Chicago producer... Knox Fortune, a.k.a. My Youngest Brother, uh, just released a single the other day. Um, actually, today, uh, Friday, is when it officially got wide release, available on iTunes, Spotify, places where music is listened to. It's phenomenal. It's really, really good, and I don't just say that because I'm directly related to him. So that's Knox Fortune. The song is... Um, yeah, this is something I should probably know, right? Um, I was gonna say. <laughs> I, I've been listening to it almost nonstop, but I might not remember the name exactly. It is um, Help Myself is the name of the single. Um, so check it out. Personal family plug. Yeah. All right. And Kaylee, what do you got for us today? Um, the last piece of media that I have consumed is the tang- Tangled the Series Episode 4. Um, which just came out today, and I, I, I love this show. I, I don't know why, but it hits me in all like the right spots, and it's just so. Um, for those of you that don't know, it's Tangled, the Disney movie that came out, um, back in what was that? 2011? Uh, 2010. I was close. Um, they decided to make a animated TV show on the Disney Channel based off of it, and it is just. I love it. So I have not watched this one in particular, but I will say that the uh, animated shows based off of The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, and I feel like also Hercules were a very large part of my childhood growing up. Same here. I have some very specific memories about episodes of those shows, so I think it's cool that they are continuing... Uh, to do this because they were actually pretty good like i feel like they should have been bad 
but yeah. they weren't. I remember watching so much of the Aladdin one. It was ridiculous. And this is this this reminds me a lot of that, but there's also a lot of parts where like I'm laughing out loud at this like kids show and it's just like this is fabulous. Like I love this. This must be a mandala effect because I don't have any memory of these at all. <laughs> um <laughs> So, there we go. I'm going to go out on a limb, Pete, and guess that you weren't watching the animated Little Mermaid show because you did not have a secret deep desire to be a mermaid? This is true. Um, It was definitely... I was not the target audience. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, but like, like Aladdin. I was into Aladdin when I was that age. Did you guys have cable? Mm Mm-hmm. I've actually found... I've actually found that that's, like, the determining factor frequently... Um, like, did you have cable? Were you watching the Disney Channel? And if you weren't, then obviously... See, I feel like for me, those shows were on, like, NBC or something, because I know we did not have cable, which I think is why I missed the Little Mermaid one, which is such a tragedy. I'm almost confident that they would not have been playing on a non-Disney channel. Okay. But I don't know. ABC I don't know is owned by Disney, so... Also, well, ABC is... is owned by Disney now. Fair point. Has that always been true? I have no idea. Also, side note, episode two of season one of this show is written by Noelle Stevenson. Throwing it Yay! in the action. Oh, wild. So, <laughs> if that's any indication uh, of, like, the quality. Also, all of the original... like, Well, not all of the, but the main voice actors have reprised their role for this show. So like it's, which is, I don't think they've ever done that before where the movie actors are playing the show actors as well. Cool. By playing, I mean, voicing, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. As for me, I have the comic that I was, that I intended to talk about last week and then forgot to read it before the episode And since I'm not a cheater, meant I had to save it for this one. Uh, I read the first issue of a brand new Boom comic series called Brave Chef Brianna. It is written by Sam Sykes, uh, who writes really awesome fantasy novels um, and illustrated by Selena Espiritu and Sarah Stern. It is a thoroughly adorable comic about Brianna, who is a chef Uh, Her father sends her and her brothers out into the world uh, to compete to become the heir to his fortune. Uh, In two months' time, the winner will be the one who opens the most successful restaurant. Hmm. Uh, Hmm. Brianna goes to Monster City because she thinks she won't have any competition there, Mm. uh, but realizes that the rules, the culinary rules are a little bit different Uh, for monsters than they are for humans so this is going to be the story of her setting up and uh becoming you know famous chef surrounded by people like susan her new waitress who is also a harpy Um, nice it's bright (laughs) it's bright and colorful and charming and brianna is adorable and i I think it's going to be a four issue miniseries um but i love it I think the second issue came out this week, and I cannot wait to buy that one. Oh, good. And read it Those as are well. always fun. All right. So let's get into our episode proper. Our topic for today is, uh, I subtitled it Alternative Facts, but really what I want to talk about is how we consume 
and process the news. And fake news. <laughs> Is that what and that? fake news. <laughs> we are going to be talking about fake news. We are going to be talking about real news. We're going to be talking about tabloids. We're going to be talking about all that stuff. But first, why don't we refresh our audience and remind them of what our homework was. Pete, recall for us, what homework did you assign? I assigned season one, episode 14 of The West Wing, which was Take Out the Trash Day. Um, a great little episode where they basically talk about how they bury the, the news stories that they don't want on the Friday afternoon press release because nobody reads the paper on Saturday. And if you pump out five stories on a Friday afternoon, that's going to take up as much column inches as one story on a Friday afternoon. So you might as well put all the stories you don't want to get any traction out on Friday afternoon because no one's going to read it and it'll all get buried by the other stories. Uh, Pete, do you know offhand what year this episode Season debuted in? one, I think, was 1999, but let me check that out. I can tell by their boxy suits that it was the <laughs> late 90s. Um, yeah, I feel as though knowing what year this episode was aired is important to the context that we are going to be talking about it in. I completely agree. I also apparently misspoke. <laughs> it is episode 13, not episode 14. Um, and it aired on January 26th, 2000. So basically okay. 1999. Yeah, so basically the 90s. Um, I love the West Wing and I think it's weird that it took us this long to sneak an episode in. <laughs> <laughs> Even this episode alone, I'm like, well, we could use this to talk about this theme and that theme and this other theme. There so was so fact, much. Oh, this sorry. Is the first episode of the West Wing I've ever seen. <laughs> Woohoo! Congratulations. So, yay. So what'd you think? <laughs> <laughs> Martha and I are both trying desperately not to be like, what did you think? Oh my god, like, uh, tell us. Uh. Except I'm not trying very hard because I may actually die if you don't tell us what oh, you thought of it. Um, well, okay, so I thought it was I thought it was good. Um, it's interesting because the guy that plays the president, um, Martin Sheen, mm -hmm. yes, he is one of the main reoccurring characters on Grace and Frankie. And so it was very interesting to see him in something else and be like, oh, it's you. <laughs> also, because we can't go an episode without talking about Mass Effect, he's the shadow man in Mass he Effect. He is. No, elusive man. Elusive man. Elusive man. Yeah. How dare you, Pete? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> By yeah, virtue of very awesome. careful timing, Andromeda was not my credential for today. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's a couple of things in this episode that I thought were interesting, uh, considering how we kind of get breaking news uh, today, um, which I kind of want to save for later. Um, Pete, I think it's safe to assume that you and I both have very positive feelings about this. I was simultaneously laughing at how good it was and weeping that it's 2017 and we don't have C.J. Craig in the uh, the press secretary position. Um, so yeah, very positive feelings about the West Wing in general. It's it's an amazing show. I I feel the I feel as though the the um the logical follow up to take out the trash day, which deals mostly with 
concerning um, the printed news. Uh, Kaylee, why don't you tell us what your homework assignment was for the week? Alrighty, so my homework assignment for this lovely week is the fifth book in the Harry Potter series called Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I, I assume you guys have read the other books in this series as well. Yeah, I Probably think it's safe, safe to assume. <laughs> yeah, we are all we are all of the generation. Okay, so this this deals with uh, Harry Potter's fifth school year, um, right after the return of Voldemort. His, you know, I was gonna say BFF, but that's not true. <laughs> not BFFs at all. <laughs> they wish they were BFFs. No, I'm just kidding. They don't. They don't. That's terrible. You've been reading um, too much slash fic. They are nemeses. <laughs> you can edit that out. I have not read any slash fic. Uh, um, leaving that in. <laughs> but uh, so yes, Harry are you Potter... saying? Are you saying there's something wrong with reading slash fic, Kaylee? Not at all. Just like Harry Potter. <laughs> that seems a little a little dark no, for me. That's a little out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm all for that. Um. So yes, fifth year Harry Potter. Voldemort's back. Um, Dolores Umbridge, everybody's BFF favorite teacher ever, not, um, is the defense against the dark arts teacher, and she's not very nice, and there's a lot of dealing with her trying to manipulate the school, um, as the government would like it to be, as well as the government-funded newspaper publishing one story versus, you know, the, the, um, I forgot the word for it. What's the word for... Is the word truth? No, the... <laughs> it's not... It's not the... I want to say Slash Magazine, but it's not a Slash Magazine. Tabloid? Oh. Tabloid, yes, thank you. Tabloid, Tabloid Magazine. Publishing more truths than the actual news. Um, yes. So, again, lots of... Uh, I don't know. I hadn't reread this one in a long time because it's my least favorite book. Um, so it was interesting to kind of, you know, skim back through it again. It is just real fast side note. It is my least favorite book and my favorite movie. Really? That's how I feel about the fourth one. It is my least favorite book, but favorite movie. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. My favorite movie is probably the last one. And the fifth was my least favorite book. But rereading this, I was like, it was nice to reread it because I knew the parts where I could be like, don't care, don't care. Uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and there weren't that many, though. In, in my mind, there were so many more parts that rereading, I'm like, oh, this isn't as bad as I remembered. No, I do find that I have, a, I had a lot more sympathy for Harry rereading it now. Um, yes. The first time I read it, I spent a lot of it going, oh, why are you so whiny? And now I'm like, well, he's whiny because he watched a guy die and then everyone he loved stopped talking to him for three months. So that kind of sucks. And also his brain might be getting invaded by Voldemort or something. So like, yes, which you don't know until the end of the book. But even, even like more mundane than that, like he went through a traumatic event and then had no one that he could talk to about it. Totally. And instead basically got returned immediately to his abusive family. If, and if everyone wanted, was go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say everyone else in his life who he relies on for stability and um, affection and companionship was basically like, we'll let you know 
when we can hang out again. <laughs> Don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> if they wanted to come up with a handbook of how not to deal with PTSD, they could just hand out the first 100 pages of this and be like, yeah, don't do this. Or how not to deal with a teenage boy. Like also even true. more simple than that. Well, and but yeah, definitely a teenage boy who underwent like really horrible trauma. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was interesting that I just I felt much more sympathetic towards him as an adult, I guess, than I did as a peer. Mm-hmm. I think the movie helped too. Um, I rewatched the movie like literally the day that I finished rereading the book, and I was very impressed with it as a way to like condense an enormous book into. Like, I think it's a less than two hour movie in the hands of a bad director. That would be like a three hour, three and a half hour, you know, slog fest. But no, they like do a really good job. Well, and that was why it was it's always been my favorite movie is because I felt like a lot of the tedious, the more tedious uh, story bits um, and more, you know, the the wor- kind of the worst parts of Harry's whining, I thought, got dispatched very effectively uh, by Daniel Radcliffe's acting and, you know, just really good script condensing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for my homework, I assigned you guys a film that I don't believe either of you had seen before. No. Correct. Uh, called Sh- Shattered Glass, uh, which came out in 2003 and is the story of the fall of Stephen Glass, uh, who was a writer for the New Republic, uh, which is a... Can we say it's a left-leaning? It's a liberal magazine. magazine. Yeah, it's a liberal magazine. Um, I I kind of looked at it a little bit. I didn't really read too much of it, but I just kind of wanted to see what it was all about. It, it, it's on the same wavelength as the Atlantic. Yeah, gotcha. So if you know the Atlantic, it's the same thing. But yeah, so in the spring of nineteen ninety-six, yes, fact, I think it might I'm, be. So. <laughs> Let me fact check this. Ninety-eight. In the spring of 1998, um, it started to come out and was broken in a 1998 article, or it was broken in an article that came out in fall of 1998, that Stephen Glass, who had been a very successful rising star in the world of journalism, had fabricated what turned out to be most of the articles that he'd written for the New Republic. Uh, the movie is centered around the last article that he wrote for him called Hack Heaven, which turned out to be completely fabricated top to bottom. It also, I think, casts light on sort of the problems of the New Republic's fact-checking system, uh, which the movie, I think, does a pretty good job of describing for you. The, the fact-checking system was set up by Stephen Glass. Yes, I <laughs> thought that was fascinating. So fascinating. Um, but yeah, so Hayden Christensen plays Stephen Glass, uh, which I thought was great because Hayden Christensen, I think, is a very sort. He's not a charismatic actor, I don't think. Um, and this is a role where he both has to be weird and not likable, but also you have to believe that the people he works with would have been totally charmed by him. And it was directed by Billy Ray, and I thought. I thought it was a very compelling uh, docudrama, uh, which turned out actually to be mostly accurate to the events as they happened, which I also thought was really interesting. Yeah. I liked everything about this movie other than Hayden Christensen. <laughs> Aww. I, I mean, like, Peter Skarsgård is in this, and that man is a goddamn national treasure. Um, he's incredible. Um, 
Hayden Christensen was sort of being a proto-Jesse Eisenberg, kind of. He was supposed to be from Highland Park, a Chicago suburb, but he had a really, like, New York-y accent going on. Um, I've never heard Stephen Glass talk. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I feel like it's not. Um, Martha, you assigned us some nice additional sidebar homework of some old Slate articles from when this movie came out. And uh, David Plotz, the reviewer of that, who also was a journalist, living that during when it happened and knew Stephen Glass personally, sort of had a, a, a comment in the review that I was very, I like totally, I don't want to say agreed with because I don't have a personal experience with this, but it resonated with me, which is that uh, Plotz's personal relationship with Glass was that he was, he had all these character traits that the character played by Hayden Christensen had, but he was like likable, whereas in the movie he was a little bit more like, weird in a way that was less likable and that that really sort of I, I read that and I'm like that's what that's exactly the problem this guy seemed weird instead of likable um in the hands of maybe a better actor he would be like likable mm. I do think that Plotz had an interesting point though uh because he went on to say that he hopes that his recollection was true mm -hmm. but that he admits that it may be colored by the way he wants to remember him. Definitely. So I thought that the 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 question of was Stephen as charming as he remembers him, or was he this like big creepy weirdo that he just wants to remember as being more likable and charming because it kind of makes him feel better about things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought that in and of itself was an interesting <clears throat> uh, interesting question. That's a really good point. Still doesn't take away from the fact that I hated hating Christensen in this. Um, and I liked everything else. I mean, I think you're supposed to. Because if you like him too much, then by the end, like, you cannot be on his side by the end of the movie. It, it wasn't a liking or disliking in terms of the character. It was, I was like, oh, you're not a good actor. Which to me feels different. See, I disagree. I've seen him in a couple of things and I've never liked him in any of them but I don't think it's because he's a bad actor. I think it's just because he gets cast as people that I want to hate. Mm. And then he does a really good job of doing that. Which might be why he just completely was like, you know what? I'm done with this acting thing. At least I feel like that's what he did. Did he do that? Never mind. Yeah, no, I, I have I, no idea. I think he did that. I haven't heard of him in 10 years. So. so, the first question as we move into our main discussion that I want to ask you guys is how do you get your news? Oh, gosh. I have a really, like, succinct answer. Um, Do so it. So I guess I'll go with that. Um, I have a few primary sources of news. I recently installed an app to block my Facebook feed. Um, so that was wonderful. Um, my primary way of getting news is from Twitter, where I follow a lot of news organizations and news people. Um, New York Times, WAPO, and Vox are my three primary publications. Um... By, By WAPO, he means the Washington, Washington Post. Post. Thank correct? you. I should, yeah. yes, I should be a little less wonky uh, in, <laughs> in my discussion here. I'm pretty sure that if you drop a HuffPo on it, on us, everyone will know what that means. But I do think that just in case we should clarify that that would be the Huffington Post. Sure. You know, just for example. Also, to just put right off uh, at the bat, I'm a big political junkie. So um, that's where this is going to go really quickly. Um, New York Times, Washington Post, Vox are my three main actual news, not pop culture news, um, locations. 
I listened to a couple podcasts about that as well. Um, Vox's In the Weeds podcast, Slate's Political Gab Fest, uh, NPR, and then whatever, again, shows up on my Twitter feed or whatever. Um, so it's mostly podcasts and online print publications. Uh, I do not watch television news. Uh, I, 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 uh, John Oliver, actually, there we go. Um, that basically wraps it up. Um, I, I don't watch any sort of televised news. Um, I don't like watching videos for my news. I'd rather read an article or listen to a podcast. But so you would say that your primary source of headlines is Twitter. And, and those three publications I mentioned, um, because I do check them. But are you, are you going to those websites or are you getting them because you follow their Twitter feeds? I mean, I follow their Twitter feeds, but I also go to their websites multiple times a day. Kaylee, where are you getting your news? Okay, it's going to sound terrible, especially in comparison to Pete. <laughs> <laughs> I... What's news? <laughs> well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, it mostly... is a question that we're going to get to. <laughs> yes, mostly nowadays, I get my news from, like, okay, it's going to sound terrible. I've had to go on, like, a political news isolation fest where I, like, it was giving me so much anxiety that I had to shut a lot of social media down just because of the fact that it was being drilled into me like 24 seven and the world is not a very nice place right now, which just brings me down so fast. So the main places where I'm currently getting my social media is from not social media. I'm sorry. (laughs) Actual media. Yes. A couple (laughs) places where I'm getting my news articles from are social media. So Twitter, Facebook, and I'm in an email thread with some of my high school friends who will post relevant news articles to there. And it, it or also my phone will yell at me, usually through BuzzFeed, hmm. usually BuzzFeed articles or Wired articles, anything that's like super hot and of topic. And I've put a lot of thought into that. Like, why, why do I do that as opposed to going to Washington Post or going to Vox? And I think it's just vetting those news posts and what I need to know through my social media filters, where if my friend posts this, it's important to them, I'm going to go check that out, which might not be the best way to do things because you're not taking more of like a overarching looking at everything sort of view, but it works for me right now because of just the fact that there's just so much going on from all directions and usually I do take it with a grain of salt. Like, okay, you posted, you know, this article from Vox or you posted this article from Andy Borowitz. Like, okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's look at these two and uh, figure out where the pieces land on each one. I, I, I know you follow me on Twitter, so you don't have to go to Vox ever because I'll just retweet anything <laughs> they ever write three times a day. Um, so I am also a Twitter news person. Um, I very rarely... I rely on Twitter for headlines, basically. Um, I don't read a whole lot of articles in depth anymore, which I know, shame on me. But that does mean that the the news accounts that I follow are things like AP, uh, the Associated Press, who is really good about giving you the information that you need in the headline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that I ask this question is because Of the three pieces of homework that we assigned, I think they all deal with different kinds of delivery systems. Um, 
Although two of them, the West Wing and Harry Potter, are very... Well, they're all printed news, basically. Uh, For one reason or another, for the West Wing and Shattered Glass, I think it's because they're dealing with a time when social media was not in use, really. I don't know when Twitter started. (laughs) Um, What fascinated me about Shattered Glass, and which I did not know before the movie, is that Forbes, which I think of as a prestigious, kind of right-wing, definitely economic-focused publication was the scrappy internet upstart in 1998. Right? Um, that blew well, my mind. how wild was that? Right. Okay, so Twitter was founded in 2006, so like 10 years after all this happened. Um, but it's interesting you say that about Forbes, because I have read so many game review articles from Forbes. Like that's Really? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Hmm. And a big piece of tension in Shattered Glass is the fact that at that at that time, um, in 1998, digital journalism was not considered as legit as print journalism. Definitely Which not. Which is fascinating. Um, <laughs> yeah, especially because we, three intelligent, well-informed people, just, you know, admitted on air that we all primarily get our at least we get our headlines, whether or not we choose to investigate them further, uh, from social media. I mean, like, New York Times and Washington Post are obviously old publications. Um, Vox started in, I want to say 2010 or something. Like, it's a very new publication. Um, and, And the founders of Vox started as bloggers, basically. So, like, it is literally a publication that, from the ground up, has been founded by people who cut their teeth in journalism with inside a digital environment, which is an entirely different environment than like the new Republic and is much more similar to like the Forbes people in shattered glass. So I want to ask you guys. So Bill, my husband and I had a fight about, well, not really a fight, a disagreement (laughs) about this. Uh, while I was watching the West wing episode, um, I made a comment about how it was really interesting to be watching because I'm pretty sure that the news cycle that they are very concerned with, and this comes up a couple of times in that show, uh, the idea of this, like, controlling a news cycle, you know, being able to, like, downplay certain things, and as long as you keep it downplayed for a certain amount of time, it'll, like, the news cycle will turn around and it'll basically be gone. Mm-hmm. Um I, I'm pretty sure that the, the idea of that kind of news cycle is obsolete now because of how instantaneous people can tweet information, people can share information. I think we're seeing a lot of unfiltered news hap- like coming out of D.C., coming out of politics, um, and the fact that it's so constant uh, and so unfiltered makes me wonder if there, there is any sort of news cycle at all. And I was wondering if you, anymore, and I was wondering what you guys thought about that question. Okay, so first off, when they said nobody reads the news on Saturdays, I'm like, well, why not? That sounds like the perfect day to read your news. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're, you're done with work, you can just sit and hang out. I mean, I guess that's what Sunday is for. And I guess back when we were younger, Sundays were like the big newspaper days which is interesting but i I do think that you're right and that this news cycle has sort of died down and i feel like 
it's been more recent. Like, I feel like it maybe not like a day cycle, but an hourly cycle is what I grew up on, where every time, you know, you turn the news on at 5 p.m. and then there's the news at 9 p.m. And like, that's not even really a thing anymore because you're just always connected to the news. So you don't have to sit, okay, got to make sure I know what's going on. Better tune in at five because I can just pop up my phone and see, okay, what's going on in the world. But even that way of viewing the news of like, let's turn on the five o'clock news um, was outdated when we were growing up because CNN was a thing. And CNN is a 24-hour news channel. Um, if you wanted local news, like True. WGN in Chicago, yeah, they had the news at 9, the news at 10, whatever. Um, but you could also tune in to the cable news network and get news any hour of the day, even if there was nothing to report. True, I forgot that that was an option because I, I grew up on not cable. <laughs> sure. So I kind of sometimes forget that you can do that. <laughs> well, and also, like, I mean, I... I don't think any of us grew up in families where CNN was running all the time because um, none of us grew up in political families, like families of politicians. That's true. But yeah, I was just struck by the fact that um, both since we are exposed to a constant stream of news all of the time now, regardless of how trustworthy that may be, um, I found the concept of a news cycle to be fairly alienating. I also thought the, the idea of burying a story amongst a pile of other stories to be interesting because I feel like now in particular we are at a time when journalists are not really letting anyone do that or they shouldn't be. Oh no, I completely disagree on that. Um, not to cut you off there, but um, I read an article a couple months ago shortly after the election, or uh, shortly after the inauguration, about Trump's media strategy and comparing it to a DDoS attack, which is a, I believe it's de dedicated denial of service, distributed denial of yes. service. Um, dedicated. Dedicated, great. So I think, I'm pretty sure it's dedicated. Cool. Um, th this is a hacker attack on a website where they basically uh, use bots to launch so many requests to access a web page that it causes the web page to crash. Um, so, like, a, a web page's server is only going to be able to handle so many requests to access it, and if you have a bot army sending in millions of requests per second, then an actual user will be unable to access that web page. The article I read compared the Trump media dumpster fire to that, which is that there are so many stories that are of such important consequence that they all get buried by the next day's story. Like, think about from January until now. It's been a rolling downhill dumpster fire of one damn thing after another. Um, you know, there there were terrible stories happening a month ago. Do we remember what they are? No, because we're caught nope. up in the ter the terrible story of yesterday. Um, and, and that's sort of... You know, they, they've buried, the, not in the way the West Wing did, but they've buried every bad story with a new bad story, so none of them... It creates a large impression of badness and an absolute crumbling of faith and trust in many of our important institutions that need faith and trust to survive, but um, it, it's meant that no individual story has stuck. Uh, see, I feel like... 
for you and I, that may be true. I don't know that I would call that totally culturally true. I think that, I don't know, this is not something I feel... I disagree with you just because I feel like we are definitely in a phase where the the truism, the internet is forever, is really kind of coming home to roost in that the more that, like, the more things come out, yeah, the more we're inundated with all of this trash. But we also have people who are constantly, like, they're trying to backtrack and they can't because this guy tweeted this one thing, like, six months ago. And then deleted it. I, th- I think that our watchdogs are better than ever, or are getting better than ever. Sure, but simultaneously, not not Who watches our... the watchdogs? I, I'm okay with the watchdogs right now. Um, my, my, my problem is that, right, like, not not for us, but clearly we're, we're at a crisis point in faith in institutions and faith in gatekeepers and, quote-unquote, the elite, which in this case I mean to be the media. Um, and by this I mean apparently America as a whole, maybe just a, one loud, large, loud segment of it, but enough that I think it matters. Um, so yeah, sure, you say something stupid, uh, you who are, you know, let's gonna say, for example, want to be the Attorney General of the United States, and you said um, publicly that you think that the Ku Klux Klan is okay, except for that sometimes they smoke weed. Um, yeah, that's gonna come back to haunt you, but it's not going to have any actual impact yet. True, but I don't know that that's—I don't know that that's a function of the news so much as it is a function of our broken political system at the moment. Well, it's—it's it's, right, and and it's the function of the lack of faith and trust in the gatekeepers, such as the media. Um, Politifact can put out its its lie checker on on Trump every day. Wapo can do the same thing, um, but if only. People like us are watching that and paying attention to that. Then, you know, does that actually have an impact? Sorry, I didn't want this episode to get as depressing as it has. No, I mean we're talking about a, a serious <laughs> issue. Um, but actually, that segues really neatly into um, something I wanted to talk about for Harry Potter, which was how interesting I thought the um, the code switch was. So in Harry Potter, you have two main publications where wizards get their news. You have the Daily Prophet, which is kind of the analog to like the New York Times or the Washington Post or like a big, um, like a big mainstream newspaper. And then you have the Quibbler, which is basically a tabloid. And at the beginning of the book, they are laid out as the Daily Prophet that everybody trusts and get their, gets their news from, and the Quibbler, which everyone laughs at because it publishes stuff like, the Minister of Magic is hunting goblins. Um, or like, snar- snarlunkhorns, what do they do? <laughs> but then, you know, over the course of the book, well, and actually pretty immediately, you, you have the Daily Prophet, which has been participating in a, cam- in a smear campaign against Harry Potter and Dumbledore, and you know, trying to mislead everybody. I mean, for the, the, um, the reasoning for that can be debated, but the fact is that they are trying to cast doubt on something that is true. And what happens is that Harry and Hermione end up using the quibbler as a conduit for the true story in a really cool role reversal <laughs> where the tabloid becomes the trusted source of information. I want to think that this is some kind of elevated commentary on how 
young people are taking control of news media, but I feel like that might be me reaching. I think I would agree with you on that. I, I, I was looking this up. Harry Potter 5 came out in 2003. So that feels a little early for that. Well, but, okay, so even if it's not intentional, you do have a couple of teenagers looking at an establishment and saying, no, this is incorrect. We are going to take charge and publish our information the only way that we know how. And then you have my favorite scene in the book where <laughs> Professor Dum where um Umbridge, Dolores Umbridge, bans the quibbler so that none of the students will read it, which instantly means that they all want to read it. Yes. Which I thought was one of the most incisive pieces of commentary on teen mind thinking <laughs> that I've ever yeah. read. And not just teen mind think, but the efficacy or lack thereof of censorship. If you actively point out a single publication and try to censor it, and you don't have an absolute mastery of your authoritarian regime, good luck, you just gave the biggest, like, advertisement possible to that publication. Yeah, the fastest way to get somebody yeah. to read a book is to put it on the banned books list. Hashtag librarians. Yeah. Well, because then <laughs> everybody wants to know what's in it, and everybody wants to know why you're afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I, I think you had an actual other question that, that we've uh, sidetracked. Maybe? I don't know. I really liked that moment in... Uh, um, <laughs> it actually... The, the, whole, um, the whole smear campaign of the Daily Prophet, when they're trying to discredit Harry and make him sound crazy, uh, reminded me a lot of the way that journalism plays out in superhero stories. Because uh, mm. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there are a lot of journalists in superhero stories. You have Lois Lane. You have Peter Parker. You have... You know, I, I feel this, like the this role... This guy named Clark Kent, you might have heard of him. <laughs> Clark Kent? J. Jonah Jameson? Mm -hmm. um, so I have Daredevil on my list of supplementary materials because specifically in season one, the story... Um, you're, you're talking Karen Netflix's story uh, Daredevil? I am. I am talking okay. Netflix's Daredevil. Um, but Karen Page and Ben Urich, the, the reporter, embark on a campaign in order to dig up the truth and discredit Wilson Fisk. Um, and I think that while that is happening, the newspaper that Urich works for is also painting uh, Matt Murdock as like a dangerous vigilante. So you have the same publication. I'm pretty sure it's the same publication. Um, if I'm wrong, I'll post it in the show notes. Um, but you have the same publication that is both going after the bad guy and vilifying the good guy, which is very emblematic of, uh, you know, kind of the way that journalism usually works in superhero stories. But um, I, I feel that the way they typically end up being like, is this guy super dangerous because he is wandering around in a mask beating people up, uh, felt very much to me similar to how Harry is painted in The Daily Prophet. Sure, except for in in Harry Potter, it, like the motives are different. The the motives are different, yes, and and the goals are different. Um, yeah, I guess at, at, that's the heart of my argument. So, okay, it is similar in that it is a similar device, but different different motivations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, real quick side note: I'm going to go back to shattered glass really fast because I wanted to mention this and I forgot. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but if you guys enjoyed shattered glass, please watch Spotlight. Oh my God, which Spotlight's is also, incredible. Which oh, is really? also a film about the process of long-form journalism, 
Only the story that that team is investigating is totally true and totally horrifying. Uh, it's the the story about the journalist, the journalism team that um, uncovered and broke the story about the uh, Catholic priests molesting children in Boston. Okay. And, and it won Best Picture in 2015. And just in case we don't get to it, uh, not to get too far off the beaten path, but we would all get strung up, uh, deservedly so, if we did not mention all the president's men. So if you're interested in yes. <laughs> journalism and fake news and all that stuff, all the president's men, mandatory viewing. Yes, um, which is actually very, I feel, is getting um, a lot of call-outs lately uh, when people are accusing our current real life journalists of not uncovering horrible things fast enough. I feel like all the president's men, the story that they, cause all the president's men is the story about the Watergate scandal and how that broke. Um, and I forget how long they were working on that, but that was a slow process. Months. So I feel like it's, it's getting a lot of play as a reference point for, so people can be like, no, this stuff takes time. Like Watergate took this long to, to really break all the president's men took took this long to to really break. So there there's a book called um, I, I believe it's called Washington Journal by Elizabeth Drew, who was a journalist, a young journalist during Watergate, and she kept a daily diary of what was going on day to day as the Watergate scandal was unfolding over months. Um, mm. I haven't read it, but I've heard it it mentioned a few times in the last couple of months of just a really good way for us all living in these times to sort of check ourselves as like, be, be, and this, this book is literally just her diaries basically republished. So you can see that as it was beginning to unfold, nobody knew what was happening and nobody knew really how important it was um, or how important or how unimportant other things were um, that at the time seemed critical. Um, so I haven't read it yet, but a lot of uh, news people whom I trust um, have been referencing it recently. So I feel like this sort of fits in very well here. Um, Washington Journal, Elizabeth yeah. Drew. Yeah, the callbacks to the Watergate scandal um, makes me think about how I, I think that our reliance on social media for our news has made us all kind of expect it to be instantaneous. And yes. when it's not, we think... When it's not, we think there's something wrong. Yes. Like, I'm I'm reminded very strongly of when Rachel Maddow uh, released the the couple pages of um, the tax returns, like, a week or two ago. Yeah. And, first of all, she did not release that information on Twitter. She waited for um, the primetime news show, which in and of itself was kind of unusual, um, I thought. But also, I, th I feel like everyone had much higher expectations for that to be sort of a smoking gun. And that's that's not what it was, and that's never what it was going to be. Um, it was the kind of thing where it was like, any information is good information, but we all are expecting it to be more. So when we get what we have, we can't see we can't see it for how useful it is. We just see it for what it isn't. And also yeah. f filtered through a couple layers of somebody's post on somebody's post on somebody's post on Twitter. Um, all you see is, like, Trump's tax returns. Like, oh, man. But really, 
it was a couple pages of a basic return that didn't actually show the things that we <laughs> would really want to see. Um, well, it, I mean, it did show stuff, and I'm not intelligent enough to talk about that in detail now, but I will post in, I will post some breakdowns of that in the blog post if people are interested. I mean, it, it wasn't useless. It just right. didn't have it just didn't have the like paying Nigerian mercenaries for assassinations that I think people wanted to see. But 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 even less, I guess, scandalous than that, Be because you're right, like people were definitely hoping for like, yep, that is the check that uh, the KGB wrote to Donald Trump, <laughs> um, you know, like and that was never going to happen. But it also didn't have things like all of Trump's business holdings, which do matter when we think about things like basic corruption and the uh, emoluments clause um, of the Constitution and things like that. So on the one hand, it wasn't useless. You're totally right. But it also wasn't like and it was never going to be a smoking gun, which it could easily and was blown up to be. Um, but it also wasn't as complete as it kind of needs to be for us as informed citizens to have a good sense of how precisely our president is enriching himself or potentially enriching himself or potentially simply has conflicts of interest. That's all true, but it's not really what I want to focus on right now. I kind of want to focus more on how we, how we all sort of reacted to that announcement and then how we, mm. Um, processed the information mm -hmm. and I think it's because we're all being trained to we're all being trained to get our information instantaneously mm -hmm. and then we're all being trained to expect it to be sensational because that's largely the kind of information we're getting nowadays um, so I just I thought it was interesting that we we were all sort of primed for it to be huge and then when it wasn't it was like oh Oh. Meh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Totally agree. Yeah. And to go back onto that, it's like, I have to keep having, like, my mom or older adults remind me these things take time. Because I sit here and I'm like, how has nobody done anything about this yet? And it's just like, this isn't like an instantaneous thing. This isn't something that somebody pushes the button and then it's over. It's like, these things... Stuff takes time. What I really enjoyed about both Spotlight and Shattered Glass is that they spend a lot of their movies looking at the process of journalism. Um, easily, it felt like 45 minutes of Shattered Glass was, hey, let me see your notes. Oh, let me call this source to confirm what you wrote. Let yeah. me look at this website to confirm what you wrote. Like, it was all about, like, the drama of these movies, the suspense of these movies is the boring process of doing journalism. Um, and it's really good to see. I thought it was fascinating that the fact-checking process in Shattered Glass relied upon checking the notes that the journalist took. Mm -hmm. Because I could see the problem with that right away. But that's also, I mean, baked into journalism ethics and journalism school is you take good notes and your notes are the foundation of your story. Um, because ideally your notes are also corroborable, whatever that word is. Um, like, <laughs> yeah, like you, like in your notes, you should have names of people that you could then call up later and corroborate what you wrote in your notes. Obviously when you just make everything up whole cloth, that's a problem. 
I'm going to read a quote real fast from the movie that I wrote down because I thought it was very, it, it resonated pretty deeply with me. It's from Towards the End, and Chuck Lane, played by Peter Sarsgaard, says, He handed us fiction after fiction, and we printed them all as facts because he entertained us. And that's, I mean, that's the movie. That it's Nobody, I feel like people were lax on Glass, lax on checking his sources, because A, they all sounded too good to make up. Mm-hmm. And B, because they wanted them to be true. And I think that came up in some of the extra articles that I sent you guys. Like, these were stories that people, we wanted these to be true because they were such good stories. Mm-hmm. That that was Plotz's uh, review of the movie, and, and he's an editor. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he was, like, saying exactly that. Uh, but that leads me to another question that I wanted us to think about, um, especially in light of... You know, we've we've been talking about like sensationalist stuff. Um, this idea of stories being entertaining, being more pressworthy. What do we consider to be news? Because so Rita Skeeter, the um, the columnist, they end up writing Harry's story in Harry Potter is primarily a gossip columnist, um, and I feel like we get a lot of information that we may not. I don't know. What do you guys consider to be newsworthy? That is a great question, especially in today's day and age. I don't know. I don't remember where I saw it. I don't remember if it was one of these pieces of homework or in something else. But um, the question of does the fact that people want to know something make it worthy of being news? I think so. Especially, like, well, if it's something that hasn't been known before and has come to light as something that is new, I would consider that news. So, like, because you can be interested in politics, tech, nature, all sorts of different things. Kardashians. Um, It doesn't... Huh? See, and Pete, that's that's where I'm going with this. Yeah. Like, Kim Kardashian gets a divorce from Kanye. Is that news? Better not. Uh, But real talk, Aaron Rodgers broke up with Olivia Munn. Is that news? People want to know. It is here in Wisconsin, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, like, and it can even be obscure things. Like, if you're really into food and somebody comes out with, like, a new pan that is, I don't know, made from monkeys or couches or something. Oh, that's how you make monkey bread. Well, I'm going to have to (laughs) go get that pan. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you better go get that pan, Pete. (laughs) But that that would be news because it's, it's... well to me it would be news it i guess more where i'm i guess more where i'm trying to lead this question is so we have a certain celebrity gossip culture and does all of the stuff that regularly comes out in tabloids presuming that it's true which is a big presumption i understand that um but is that's is that news does the public wanting to know the details of someone's private life constitute that as being newsworthy I think it's weird, but I think it's news. Like, that's not the kind of news that I'm interested in, but I think that it would constitute as news. Right. How do you feel about the right of a celebrity to maintain a private life, Kaylee? Oh, I'm totally for it. I think that they, that every single celebrity deserves a private life. But you also 
think that I get to know what's going on with them. I'm not trying to trap you. I'm sorry. I'm being mean. Um, mostly <laughs> okay. I'm leading up to I have Lady Gaga's song Paparazzi on our list of supplementary material because I think that it asks some really good questions about what we consider to be news and what we can what news we consider to be the property of the public. So, so what Kaylee was mentioning a second ago about um, monkey pans and just tech and, and different like genres of news, I think is <laughs> is is really important. When I when uh, on the initial question of where do we get our news sources, I was very particular in selecting only my sources of what I consider political news because that is what I consider capital N news. However, I I also listen to podcasts and watch um, and read websites about um, pop culture news, which I think is equally news, ditto with food blogs or, um, you know, music news or what the Kardashians are doing. Um, For various genres of news, those are all news. I strongly believe that uh, celebrities should have a a right to a private life and all the rest of that. And I also fully believe that true news needs to be verifiable and needs to be fact-checkable and needs to be true. Um, And I think that that's a, a real problem that we're coming up on in this modern land of fake news and all the rest is that, like, Donald Trump uses the word fake news to mean news I don't agree with or news that doesn't treat me how I want to be treated. Whereas a publication like Breitbart or the National Enquirer is truly fake news because they are making things up that is like completely not only unverifiable, but was never intended to be verified and is tended to maybe do other things, but not be an actual story. So I don't care if what you care about is the Kardashian, is, is Kim and Kanye getting a divorce. Um, I mean, that's stupid, who cares? But also, like, that's fine. If that's, if that's your jam, that's cool, as long as they're actually getting divorced. I don't want to see in grocery stores uh, Bradgelina breaking up shocking tell-all about Brad and his five mistresses and what's happening to their kids when it's all made up garbage. Because that isn't news, because that's not happening. I, I, I'm okay with, with your news being new pan made out of monkeys, as long as there's actually a new pan to make monkey bread that's made out of monkeys. <laughs> um, I mean, ethical concerns aside, if right. that's true, then, uh, then that's news. Um, but if you made that up, then that's not news. Right. And to go back real quick regarding the celebrity news topic, I just feel like kind of like I do have to like justify myself in that I do believe that they deserve their own private life. But if I wasn't trying about... to trick you, I promise. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't trying to trap you. I actually think that we could do a whole episode on the commoditization of celebrities. I would love um, to, honestly. <laughs> But know, yeah, you don't what... you don't have to defend yourself because I was being mean and I didn't have to do that, so I apologize. <laughs> okay. Although to be fair, I did pull up news on Wikipedia, and the etymology of the word news comes from the plural form of new. Yes. So Novus. I was right when I said that I consider news anything that is new. <laughs> In conclusion, Pete does not think you should read Us Weekly. 
Okay. But what oh, about is, is us the weekly? Pete, <laughs> how do you feel about the National Enquirer? Um, I'd oh, be a lot more Kate us... if they were the Onion because the Onion, well, except for the fact that currently the Onion is apparently writing actual news stories instead of satire. Um, not actually true, just that their satire feels too real. Yeah, like, if the National Enquirer said, like, ha-ha, we're America's favorite funny journal, um, that'd be one thing, because then it's a joke. But they're not a joke, and people don't... Many people think they are a joke, which is correct. Many other people don't, and that's a problem. Oh, I'm sorry, I was thinking of the Weekly World News. My apologies. Us Weekly is the... (laughs) Us Weekly is the one that you see in grocery stores that always has the Brangelina breaking up. Find oh. out about the hot girl he's sleeping with. Yep, garbage. That that's yeah. some Rita Skeeter nonsense. Uh, Weekly World <laughs> News is no longer in print. I'm devastated. How will America learn about Bat Boy? I don't know. One last thing before we wrap up. Um, sure. Which is more more just than I like. So, so Shattered Glass is based on Stephen Glass, um, who is a real person, obviously. He did all his shenanigans in, what do we say, 1998? Um, yes. Well, that's when he got caught. Okay, great. So he got caught in 1998. Um, the movie came out in 2003. Also in 2003, a New York Times journalist by the name of Jason Blair got caught for doing the exact same thing, but less well. Stephen Glass, for all his many, many problems, at least had, like, the chutzpah to make a fake website and fake business cards and a fake answering machine with a fake voice on the other end and, like, back up his fake stories with fake sources. Um, Jason Blair just made stuff up and didn't source it well. So there there was a time period for a while where there was a lot of that going on. Um, And I just want to plug, if you haven't seen The Wire, please see The Greatest Thing on Television. But season five specifically focuses on the Baltimore Sun and focuses on, again, the process of journalism, which we were talking about earlier. Um, And I think it's really important for us non-journalist people, but who have an interest in the news, to be able to see, like, you know, the sausage of journalism get made. Because that both, in many ways, restores faith in the process. Um, Watching Peter Skarsgård track down and blow up all the fake sources does lead faith in the process of editors and fact-checkers finding these sources and confirming them or blowing them up, which I think is really important right now. Um, And season five of The Wire I want to bring up because it also deals with a character, uh, a journalist who is, spoiler for a 10-year-old show at this point, um, making up sources and making a fully fabricated story about a serial killer in Baltimore, which... He's very much a Stephen Glass and a Jason Blair type character of golden boy journalist writing a too-good-to-be-true story that turns out to be literally too good to be true. And I think it's always important to be on the lookout for things like that, for when stories are too good to be true, especially now mm-hmm. when, when a lot of us are running around chickens with our heads cut off, concerned about, you know, Russian influences in the election, things like that. We all need to be very critical but we also need to know the process and trust the sources that we trust and that have proven to be trustworthy. Yeah. Which I had a fun situation with that and Andy Borowitz before I knew that he was a satire writer. And I found some article and I was like, what? This can't be true. And I looked up his name 
And it was just like all these unbelievable articles for the same newspaper. And I'm like, okay, guys, this is this can't be real. <laughs> like, I, I, either he's lying to the newspaper or it's satire. Yeah. And it was all satire, but like, it was my first, it wasn't like, it was my first, like, exposure to him. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I had seen him around and like believed him for years. It was like, oh, who's this guy? It's completely satire, but that's okay. Borowitz is a good example because he's not the Onion. Like, you see an Onion article and you're like, eh, it's yeah. the Onion, whatever. But like, Andy Borowitz in the New Yorker, well, that's the New Yorker. Exactly. Be cautiously trustworthy of your news sources would be, I guess, my, my ending point. I have a whole presentation on vetting vetting your news sources, but it's mostly written for teenagers, so it's probably a little uh, basic for some of our audience. Um, but I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, thanks for listening. Pete, would you like to tell us what our topic for next episode is going to be? Yes. Next episode, we are going to be talking about caring for or failing to care for our environment. Uh, My homework for next episode is going to be a little-known flick from a director by the name of uh, James Cameron. Uh, It came out in 2009, and it's called Avatar. Oh, what's that about, Pete? I've never heard of it before. So oddly oddly enough, I've actually never <laughs> seen it, which is kind of embarrassing. Um, I'm a sci-fi nerd. I like James Cameron. I should have seen this movie when it came out, but I never did. You should have. Um, so I don't know. It's about blue alien cat people defending their planets from Americans or something, uh, looking for <laughs> unobtainium slash oil. That's what I understand it to be. I guess we'll find out if that's true. And Kaylee, what do you got for us? So I have a great little movie from um, 2006 called Idiocracy, directed by Mike Judge. (laughs) Um, I have never seen this movie. so I have an embarrassing fondness for this movie. It's it's one of my favorites. Um, And my homework for you guys is going to be the first volume of the 1982 manga Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind uh, by Hayao Miyazaki. He later adapted it into a film, but I am going to ask you to read the first volume of the uh, of the actual manga because reasons. Um, Watch the movie if you like. The movie is also pretty great, but that'll be extra credit. Finding us on the web, uh, you can find us at homeworkpodcast.com, where after every episode we post show notes, um, extra credit reading, uh, the homework for next week. You can find us on Twitter at DYDH Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework? Um, email us at show at homework. Pete, what's our email address? That's a really good question. I don't know. <laughs> um, give me one second. I think second. it's show at, show at homeworkpodcast.com. Um, if you reach out to us, if you post questions, comments, discussion points, uh, anything that you post on any of our social media will be read out loud on air. Uh, please, if you are so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, you can download our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, uh, anywhere you can find, anywhere you get your regular podcasts. We are available. 
Um, and Pete, where can people find you if they wanted to check in on what you do on the web? You can find me at Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000. Uh, Kaylee, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at TrickyLemon. And you can find me pretty much anywhere at MagicalMartha. Uh, Our episodes are edited and produced by Pete, which I don't credit him enough for, but he's doing a very wonderful job and we're all very thankful for it. Yes. Um, And that will do it for our episode. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you in two weeks.